Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, so did you know that you can not only listen to us on this podcast, but you can engage with us on social media and read stuff that we've written and watch stuff that we're in? We're all over the place. We're not just in your earbuds. It's a crazy time to be alive. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Uh, if you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr, where we are below the mind on all those platforms, we're curating all kinds of weird science that we're not putting into the episodes. All the stuff that Robert and Joe and I find throughout the day that is just utterly bizarre. Uh, and then... We've got videos like our Monster Science series and lots of blog posts. Uh, Robert, in particular, is uh, profound and prolific uh, on our blog side. So if you want to hear more from us about, I don't know, music, Monster Science, what would you cook up this week? Um, I'm actually working on another um, Higher Human Forms post, uh, which is a a body modification series that I've been doing with a focus more on uh, sort of religious themes and body modification and sort of like religious transhumanism. I can't remember. Have we talked about American Mary before? I think it may have come up a few times. You've seen it? Yeah. Yeah. A very interesting horror film. Yeah. A great horror movie, really interesting take on the body modification community Mm -hmm. and uh, directed by twin female sisters that just did an excellent job and co-star in the movie. Yeah. And they're Canadian to boot. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. Right. Right. Saska sisters. One more way that you can interact with us, especially if you want to talk about horror movies, because that seems like a big thing that goes on there, is on Fridays at noon Eastern Standard Time, we are on periscope uh and basically for you know 20 minutes we will sit there and uh answer questions that you have last week joe brought a pretty interesting article about uh outer space to the table that we discussed with our uh, our fans on there uh and we'll tell you you know some kind of behind the scenes stuff too like what we're recording that week what uh what kind of you know things are coming up on the show uh, and vice versa but in this episode we are discussing um an interesting and troubling topic, and uh, and, and that is uh, the idea of psychopathy in children and uh, and adolescents. Um, this is uh, I, want, I definitely want to preface here that that I I in particular I'm approaching this uh, topic not only as someone who just finds the the trope itself kind of fascinating from a cultural standpoint. You know, yeah. you can't get away from. Uh, the killer child, the terrible t- child, the uh, what the the uh, infant uh, terribles. It's a it's a uh, trope, I guess, or archetype that I mm-hmm. think is like ingrained into human culture. The fear of our own children coming yeah. for us. Yeah, and and as a father now, I have to say I, I I feel a lot of that. You know, I mean, you when you have this strange creature becoming more right. and more human in your your life. Uh, you think about that. You can't help but worry about uh, about all the things that could go wrong, um, or or you know all the problems that could arise. And so, I, I definitely want to to drive home that that's in my mind the whole time. So I don't want anyone yeah. to, to come into this thinking that we're going to take a real callous approach to it. That we're all just about you know talking about horror movie tie-ins for the topic because obviously yeah. it's a very it's a very sensitive issue. And if anyone out there who is uh, planning to have children, already has a child, and watching that child develop. Uh, this, is, this is something that could a uh, topic that could produce a fair amount of anxiety. Yeah, but I also think too, like uh, from reading the literature, that there's a lot to be learned here too. If yes. you're a parent, right? Both about uh, we're definitely going to be talking about nature 
not versus nurture, but and nurture. They're working together here, right? And there's things to look out for, but there's also ways, techniques of parenting that work especially well, especially if, you know, you think that your child may have the traits of being callous or unemotional in the way that we're going to describe here that uh, subsequently lead to some of these attacks. Yeah, uh, I, I do want to say uh, the original idea for this did come from our October <laughs> uh, marathon of doing things that were kind of related to Halloween. And it was just one of the things that I couldn't get in under the deadline. I was thinking about the premise of Michael Myers in the Halloween movies, which is that he was a kid who killed members of his family, was taken away to a mental asylum for that. And when he was like nine years old or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and, and then subsequently grew up, escaped and, you know, was a serial killer. Yeah. But he's just essentially (laughs) a a black hole of, uh, of emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And so what I wanted to look into there was, is that actually possible? Mm -hmm. Is, Michael Meyer, the, the, the idea there of a child, first of all, of a, a, and it's hard to find uh, this under a search term, but the term that's used clinically is juvenile homicidal offender. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause when you type in child killer, it usually is associated with people who kill children, not children who kill. Um, and so I was looking to see, you know, what's the likelihood of this actually happening? And then also, you know, in the case of the Michael Myers myth, uh, what's the recidivism look like? So when these children are released as adults, you know, what, what do their lives look like? Yeah, and ultimately we're also going to discuss uh, the, the bright side and some of the treatment options that are uh, becoming available, that are showing promise, uh, because it's easy to get hung up on just the trope, right? On the yeah. idea of the, oh, this is a bad seed, this child is just a, a, a black hole of emotion and there's no altering that. But uh, yeah, that's that, the myth and that's what the media loves to grab yeah. onto anytime we have one of these incidents happen, especially in the United States. And it's way more complex than that. Right. But the thing that's really interesting is, like you said, like uh, as we study this further and further and understand the biology behind it, we also find it really interesting ways to treat it. So just to get it out of the way, some of the more common uh, versions of the trope, uh, the bad seed trope that we see, um, you have uh, Damien from The Omen. That's a big one. Yeah. Uh, the kids from The Village of the Damned. Mm-hmm. Um there's The Bad Seed itself, which was a 1956 uh, theatrical film uh, and a TV movie in 85. You have The Good Son. You have The Ring. You have Peter Wiggin and Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, who like to torture animals uh, and uh, physically and mentally torment his siblings. And the animals thing is real, mm-hmm. as, we'll, as we'll talk about. There's a, there's a murderous newborn in Ray Bradbury's short story, Small Assassin. Uh, there's the young Tom Riddle in Harry Potter, of course. Uh, there's Alia in Dune. There's a Mordred Deshane in uh, Stephen King's The Dark Tower uh, series. You could probably uh, count Stewie Griffin. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so we have this trope of this child that is just unredeemably bad, that, 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 is, that is evil in, a, in some inhuman way, yeah. generally with some sort of magical uh, scenario. Uh, backing up why they're that way. I think it's particularly helpful actually here to use Halloween and John Carpenter's vision for Michael Myers as what isn't happening. That's the fantastic version, right? In that John Carpenter is always referred to that character as the shape, right? He's not human. He it's, he's not a product of upbringing or things, you know, uh, mental problems necessarily as much as it's just a a body full of evil right right now rob zombie's version uh that ultimately changes that in the remake we don't really need to go down that rabbit hole but 
But uh, I think that it's important to say that's not what's going on here with children who do kill. Right. And and just to, to get it out of the way, psychopathy in general, like what is a psychopath? A psychopath demonstrates significantly reduced empathy with the feelings of others. Uh, and uh, supporting the theory that this uh, that this deficit makes it easier for them to inflict pain on victims. Uh, their mirror neurons are too out of whack for them to feel their victim's pain, uh, making uh, the most uh, you know cold blooded of homicides a little uh, a little easier to to uh, to commit. So it uh, yeah it has to do with a lack of empathy and a and, yeah. and a callousness in nature. But it's it's a, a a neurological condition and certainly not uh, some sort of a supernatural occurrence. So let's get this out of the way to start off with and answer, you know, what my initial question was, which is really how likely are juvenile killers? And in fact, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice has uh, plenty of statistics about this on their website. So you can go there and find this, but I'll share a couple with you here that I think are important. Um, the first is that in 2013, so that's as far back currently as our, our data shows, uh, the known juvenile offenders that were involved were in 610 murders in the U.S. in 2013. So that sounds like a lot, I know, but that represents 7% of all known murder offenders from that time. So it is relatively small, actually. Also, as of 2013, the number of juvenile homicidal offenders is at its lowest level in 34 years since we started tracking this, which is pretty wild. Uh, and in fact... I really recommend going uh, to the to the Department of Justice's site and looking at the charts that they have built out of this, because apparently the real spike for this was in the 90s. Uh, 93 and 94 were particularly bad. And you just see this huge spike. But we are right now, as we're recording this episode, at an all time low or I guess all time in terms of as long as they've been recording it. Uh, homicide offending also increases with age. So it's less likely that it's going to happen if you are, say, uh, under 15 years old. Only 10% of the offenders were under 15, whereas 76 of them were 16 or 17 years old. And, and in my mind, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking more along the lines of like preteens, juveniles, like under 13, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and that does happen, but it is, again, significantly small. In 2010, the Justice Department released information saying that 29 children under the age of 14, so this is more along the lines of what I was thinking, had committed homicides that year. And uh, the other interesting thing is that the victims are more likely to be acquaintances. So as of the 2013 data, 37% of them were acquaintances, while 28% of them were total strangers. So the idea of... Uh, a young child going completely psycho and murdering a total stranger is rare and uh, unlikely. Now, male juvenile homicide offenders varied uh, substantially, but female juvenile homicide offenders have a steady rate, um, accounting for a very small share. Less than 100 were implicated in homicide since 2002. And in 2012, of the 8,514 people arrested for murder in the U.S., only one was a girl under 13. In 2013, the number was at its lowest since at least 1980, and there is no evidence that homicide among young girls is increasing. And this is, uh, I, I think, important to note, uh, because as some of our listeners will probably have immediately come to mind, I believe it was in, well, it's related to the creepypasta episode oh, yes, that we yes. recorded the recently. Slender Man murders, it, right? Tw- yeah, mm-hmm. was it 2012, 2013? I can't remember. But, uh, you know, uh, two young girls who were fascinated with the creepypasta stories about Slenderman tried to murder uh, one of their peers. 
uh, and were unsuccessful. But that story, like, you know, whenever these stories pop up, scared a lot of people and made them think, oh, my God, uh, th- look at this, this evidence that young girls are becoming murderers. Uh, and in fact, that's not the case if you look at all the data. The other important thing to remember here, too, data wise, is that a lot of this activity happens in groups. Remember that I mentioned that it was two girls in the Slenderman case. It wasn't just one girl on her own. About half of the number of homicides committed by known juvenile offenders as of 2012 involved multiple offenders. So that's important to realize you know, children are more likely, we've all been kids, and it, 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 even if uh, you're a child, if you're under uh, 14 listening to this show right mm-hmm. now, you know you're more likely to do things that you, together, than you would alone. I'm sure, I well, I know, I did things that I regret that I wouldn't have done on my own that I did with a group of friends. Yeah, so it's easy to imagine a, any, a variety of scenarios in which a younger individual mm-hmm. is just roped into some sort of horrible situation yeah. with older children. Yeah, and you know the the kids can kind of ramp one another up yeah. with this fantasizing. Exactly, mm-hmm. it becomes reality through them talking, and then ultimately peer pressure uh, leads to these risky choices. And uh, many children don't even really understand what dead means. You know, a, a lot of the kids that are interviewed after they commit these murders, they don't understand that this is a permanent thing. They think of it as sort of being magical. Uh, so that's important to remember as well, too, that there's right. a lack of understanding here of, of, of the crime that's being committed. Uh, and, and lastly, before we get into the, you know, the meat behind uh, what's going on inside juvenile homicidal offenders, it's important to note that in June of 2012, the Miller versus Alabama case that was heard by the Supreme Court ultimately decided that juvenile murderers did not have to serve their lives in jail for crimes. This was a tight decision. It was a 5-4 decision in which they chose to ban mandatory life sentences of life imprisonment for juvenile offenders. So now, as of as as of that uh, you know uh, decision, there can those who are convicted of these murders have a possibility of eventual freedom. This is in the U.S., mind you. You know, mm-hmm. uh, this stuff happens in other countries, as we'll talk about as well. But you know, we're here in America. A lot of the research was done in America, so that's you know what I'm going to base our information off of. As of right now, the Supreme Court is is waiting to hear Montgomery versus Alabama, which is another uh, a case that will basically see whether or not they can apply. This retroactively, meaning that children who were in prison for life for murders before the 2012 decision will eventually be able to be released. Yeah, and obviously it's it's such a tough situation to weigh in on because you you're ultimately dealing with adults and yeah. and trying to figure out how to treat this adult who uh, in their youth, in their childhood, even uh, committed this act before they actually were fully formed as an, as an individual. Mm-hmm. So there's a few examples here that let's get out of the way of just, you know, known cases where this has happened that have been popularized. One, obviously, uh, the, you know, Michael Myers being the inspiration for looking into this research is a guy named Edmund Kemper. There's also a person who is known only as Girl A in Japan. Uh, she was uh, 14 years old and killed an 11 year old in Japan in 1997 and mounted his head outside their school. 
So when this happened, the country's parliament actually lowered the age of criminal responsibility from 16 to 14. Hmm. So you can see how these singular incidents, which are horrible, by the way. Yeah, they get a lot of press coverage, and then it becomes an issue um, for politicians to tackle, and then you get laws on the books. Exactly. So we've seen just in the last you know five minutes how both Japan and the United States have changed their laws based on these. There's the Slender Man girls that we were talking about earlier. And one thing I'd like to mention here, just as an anecdote, I don't want to dive into that whole uh, affair, but that when psychiatrists interviewed one of the children who was responsible, she said that she believes in unicorns, that she can communicate with Lord Voldemort and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and she also believes that she has the ability of Vulcan mind control. So that helps you to kind of put into place here, this is a child who's fantasizing about things. I don't think that she quite understood what was going on. Yeah, I mean, she. this seems to illustrate a real uh, inability to uh, distinguish fantasy from reality. Yeah. And one last example that I want to throw out there, especially because um, one of our fans uh, mentioned it on Facebook earlier this week, is Mary Flora Bell. Uh, in 1968, she strangled two young boys when she was a child. She took a new name and started her life over when she was released from prison in the 1980s. I believe that she's British. Um, so that would explain why, you know, she was released. Mm-hmm. Uh, she... And her daughter, she now has a daughter, were promised a lifetime of anonymity. And this is now referred to over there as a Mary Bell order. So basically, if you commit a crime as a child and they, you know, deem that you're able to be released, you are and you can live your life in anonymity if you so choose uh, so that you don't have to, you know, have that hanging over your head, I guess. Uh, now, so from, from some of the readings I had about Mary Bell, apparently... Uh, she was somehow involved in a book about her life and received money for it. And that somehow subsequently let her daughter know about her past actions. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of conflict there and a little bit of controversy about the fact that she was being paid to talk about these horrible acts that she'd done. Hmm. So obviously, with uh, as with any uh, topic dealing with... Uh with childhood. This is a big, uh, there's a big discussion of nature and nurture here. Like how much of this is genetics? How much of this is just, uh, you know, uh, uh, tendencies that are going to be inherent in yeah. you as a person. And then how much of it is the nurturing? How much of it is, uh, is the, the level of attention, the level of, uh, of, of parental presence and parental guidance that are present there. Where, where does this behavior emerge from and how can either side of the scenario curb it? There, there's a, a quote from a book about this that I want to use as sort of a guiding principle for us going forward. It's almost like a thesis statement mm-hmm. of, of what I think that the data and research reveals. And it's by Deborah Nyhoff. She's the author of a book called The Biology of Violence. And her quote is, behavior is the result of a dialogue between your brain and your experiences. So it's not just your biology and it's not just your experiences. It's those two interacting together. Uh, and we, you know, I, I remember, uh, especially in school, often being told about the nature v nurture argument, you know, right. almost like a Supreme Court, <laughs> Supreme Court case. Which one is it? And it's both, especially in this situation. Um, so think about it this way. Childhood development essentially works like this. In our preteen and teenage years, Both girls and boys develop intense social relationships, especially when we're adolescents. We like to, you know, become independent and we feel everything really intensely, right? What's going on there is that our prefrontal cortex is the part of our brain that's in charge of critical thinking, judgment and deliberation hasn't fully developed. In fact, like even when we're adolescents, you know, some of us like to think of, well, 
when I was 15, I was basically an adult or whatever. I don't uh-huh. know. I, I don't when I look back on that. <laughs> I was an idiot. But, uh, uh, it, it, that's essentially what's going on. Our, our brains are still developing. So there's lots of room for how they develop, right? Uh, and one of the quotes about this from a researcher looking into it said, it's like they are in a muscle car without brakes. <laughs> I like that analogy. That's, yeah. what, that's what high school felt like for me. <laughs> that sounds about right. I mean, it, it's easy to forget just how much is going on in the high school mind. Um, and it, it seems like so high schoolers can seem so alien. Teenagers can see so, seem so alien. And in a sense, they are like they're, they're, they're thinking and changing, uh, in some very dramatic ways. A 1990s National Institute of Health project scanned over a hundred teen brains, uh, as well as some younger individuals and some older ones. And they found that as we grow, our brains undergo just massive reorganization between our 12th and 25th year. That's crazy to think. That yeah. Like even up until 25, we are still maturing and developing. Yeah. I mean, in my, I look back and I'm like, yeah, that, that totally makes totally sense. Totally At makes least sense. 25, maybe yeah. more. Being older than 25 <laughs> now. Yeah. I can definitely look back. I remember being 25 though and thinking like, I got this under control. <laughs> I totally didn't. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen it described as a, a slow wave, uh, and subsequent imaging work has, has shown that these the physical changes, uh, they all start uh, in the brain's rear and they move toward the front uh, from areas uh, close to the brain stem that that uh, look after older, you know, more basic primal functions, mm-hmm. uh, and then move forward through our, our ability to process all of that stimuli. And during this period too, you see, um, you see this idea that, um, that, that a teenage brain also is going to be super, um, uh, obsessed with uh, making social connections with other individuals. Um, and I've, I've seen this argued as kind of an evolutionary advantage to where the teen is, has evolved to leave, um, its family and find a home with yeah. new people. And therefore, uh, the brain is looking for that example and it's willing to take more risks in order to carry it out. This brain development is definitely something that I have to wonder if it's more recent for humanity in that, like that we're developing up until the age of 25. I mean, that somewhat makes sense for us now in that, like we don't, in our current culture in America, we don't consider ourselves quote adult until we're 18. Right. But like, uh, the responsibilities of children in much earlier ages, even just going back to the medieval age, mm-hmm. uh, were so much earlier. You know, I wonder if over time that there was a, a gradual progression of getting to this point where the brain was allowed to develop more and more and more as we got older. Or, you know, you could think of it in terms of something like a butterfly. It's all the, the stages that take place in yeah. order to reach that point where the butterfly is just around to, to breed and do its thing and die. That's so true, yeah. you, you could say that really past 25 or not too much past 25 is just kind of extra time. Uh, yeah. just the, you know, the, the landing strip. Everything we got after 25. That's why after 25, you're, uh, like a, a village elder. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's scary, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, the bottom line <laughs> is that, yeah, a ton of, um, of, of mental development takes place during this time span. And, uh, and the brain of the child, the brain of the teen, even, you know, on up in 25, 25 year olds is a, is a different beast than the adult brain. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into psychopathy then, specifically in kids, right? So right up front, I want to distinguish like psychopathy and being psychotic are two totally different things. Right. So we are talking about psychopathy and psychopaths today. Mm-hmm. And there's also, those are basically the same thing as sociopathy, right? right. So uh, when these terms are thrown around, it's important to remember that. 
that there's there's a difference here. But so it gets back to what we were talking about earlier. They're referred to in some uh, corners as CU kids, right? Because right. they're callous and unemotional. Uh, yeah. They show little empathy for others or remorse for their own actions. And like you said earlier, they're prone to violence. Yeah, and the CU thing I think is important too when it comes to labeling so that in the treatment of uh, these children you have something other than psychopath to throw around, which is mm-hmm. such a loaded term. It's super loaded, yeah. and it's especially, uh, you know, just, oh, to have, to be a parent and to have that term applied to your kid is, is terrifying, not only because of, you know, the implications, but also because that is a label that is going to determine the outcome of their life. And I think the the research is showing more and more that psychopathy is it's not that that situation where oh this this child has the mark and this one right. doesn't, but rather there are varying levels. There's a spectrum mm-hmm. upon which a uh, uh, vast majority of people are going to uh, pop up. In a lot of ways I saw it compared in the literature to both autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Yes. And not that there are s- similar things going on in the brain. In fact, they're not. But, uh, but that, like you said, there's gradations, uh, and there's different ways in which that affects the person's ability to interact with their community, right? Right. Uh, and, but at the same time, there are also different and uh, growing ways to treat and, uh, not cure necessarily. I don't think that's the right word, but to, to, to help these children, uh, grow out of it. Right. So uh, how do they figure that out? They've got a couple different tools that are essentially tests that they give them. One is the inventory of callous, unemotional traits. I really wish we had access to one of these uh, we could have taken before the podcast, because <laughs> I, uh, I have to wonder if I where I would uh, uh, score on these. The other is the child psychopathy scale. And then they use a modified version of a test for adults that's called the antisocial process screening device. So all these are various, I think, written and oral tests that essentially tell psychologists, you know, kind of where on the spectrum these children fall. Now, this is a crazy statistic right here. A recent estimate by the neuroscientist Kent Keel placed the national cost of psychopathy this is in the U.S., at $460 billion a year. That's 10 times the cost of depression. Uh, and the reason why is because, in part, psychopaths tend to be arrested repeatedly. So that leads us to, you know, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but that insinuates that there's a bit of recidivism that goes on here. So setting aside the examples you've seen in, in movies and whatnot, uh, here are some ex- actual examples of the kind of behavior one might um, encounter with uh, with CU kids. Mm-hmm. So callous and emotional children tend to be highly manipulative. Um, and it, it, again, this is this is one of those situations where you can look at any child and you can see levels of manipulation. So it's it's easy to get carried away in uh, in diagnosing the children in your life. Yeah. Trying to get that cookie, right? Trying to manipulate a a parent into letting them do this or that. Yeah. And I would imagine too, that there are times not being a parent myself, but I would imagine there are times when you are a parent that your patience is running thin Mm. and and you might be more prone to, to say, wait a minute. Yeah. I got to get this little psychopath. Jimmy, a psychopath. (laughs) Yeah. So you kids also may lie frequently, uh, not just to avoid punishment as all children will, um, yeah, that's or, important to distinguish. Yeah. 
Or to just get up out of brushing their teeth or all something, you know? All kids lie. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like something out of the wire. Like, all children lie. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the power of discovering the, 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 the lie, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the almost magical nature of it, mm-hmm. that you can say a thing and in doing so kind of make it true. Yeah. Like, that's big magic, uh, even as an adult and as a kid, all the more. Uh, but with CU children, there's going to be a more likelihood that they're just going to lie for the sake of lying for mm-hmm. no reason. Um, you're going to see poor impulse control. And I should probably just go ahead and drive home that impulse control is something that uh, that you see uh, sort of gradually come online as well. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. going to vary from child to child. But generally speaking, the younger the child, the less impulse control. Uh, and then as they develop, it's going to improve. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. By um, generally by the age 15, um, a, a an individual taking an impulse control test are going to be able to do as well um, as as an adult about 70 to 80 percent of the time mm-hmm. um, if they're applying themselves and, you know, and thinking about it. Um, but uh, with, with CU kids in particular, like poor impulse control. Uh, also, uh, you, you're going to see uh, see that they're unrepentant in their behavior. They're n- they're not going to you know cave and say they're sorry about something. Mm-hmm. And like adult psychopaths, uh, they can seem to lack humanity uh, for you know, for to an outside observer, they they may they might seem like that Michael Myers kid, um, but of course, there's a lot more going on. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to add here before we go on that a a, a really great piece that we found uh, for the literature for this episode was in the New York Times Magazine, actually, and it was published in 2012. The article is called Can You Kill or sorry, Can You Call a Nine-Year-Old a Psychopath? And I posted it to our Facebook page this week, but um you can easily Google that if you want. A really fascinating long form read that uh this journalist embedded herself in a family with a child, I can't remember how old he was, but uh who was diagnosed as being CU, potentially a psychopath, and was actually attending a I don't know. School isn't the right word. It was like a center. It was right? more of a yeah, like a summer camp program, a summer program that yeah. was kind. Of, it was an offshoot of a program aimed at uh, children with autism, mm-hmm. and this was a and this branch of the the camp was aimed at children, uh, CU kids. Um, yeah, the the piece in the, that we're discussing here is excellent, uh, and it really puts a, a human face on. Absolutely, scenario. it goes it goes very in depth into the experiences of this child's mother and father. Uh, and, and also, uh, his siblings as well, uh, as well as getting into the data and talking to psychologists. I just, I was very impressed with the work in there. Yeah. Um, incidentally, the, the camp that we're talking about was held by a Florida International University. Okay. Yeah. And speaking of the uh, heredity of the kid, we kind of come back to uh, the yeah. nature side of it uh, here and, uh, heredi- uh, the heritability of callous and emotional traits might be as high as 80%. Wow. Yeah. And if in from that piece, my, what I remember is uh, they spoke to his father and the father said, yeah, when I was a kid, I also had social issues. I also was unemotional and unresponsive, but I grew out of it. Yeah. And uh, in the piece, they also quote uh, Purdue psychologist Donald uh, Lynham. And uh, he points out that it's no higher than the herit- uh, heritability for anxiety and depression. Both of those conditions have large genetic risk factors, but of course we can we can treat them. Mm. And so the idea he, idea here is that 
there's there's a lot of lot of hope and a lot of data that supports the the notion that this is treatable as well. This is not some uh, you know cosmic black mark on an individual that can't be uh, addressed. Right. Absolutely. Even though it sounds like it. Again, I think there's a stigma attached to the word psychopath. Yeah. Right. Um, in fact, I almost think that it would benefits psychology to come up with a different term. And maybe that's why they use CU kids, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, because, because it, it does cling to this um, you know, kind of outdated notion that, it, yeah. that it can't be treated, that it can't be cured. And we're seeing more and more research that shows that yes, there are ways there, there are treatments that can work yeah. with adults even to, um, to bring some uh, level of compassion online. Whereas the term psychopath implies culturally this child is evil Yeah, nothing will do anything about it. Well, and so we talked about how it's assessed, but, you know, I threw out those tests earlier. But in fact, there's no standard way to just figure this out. Uh, in fact, some psychologists believe that it's a distinct neurological condition uh, and that, you know, maybe we'd be able to identify it in children as young as five years old. But it's difficult, right? Right. Uh, especially because their brains are still developing and because normal behavior at these ages can sometimes be misinterpreted as psychopathic. I could totally see that. My, my interactions with, uh, under five year olds is limited, but you have quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like I say, there, there are days when you think of oh, they're all complete psychopaths, but, <laughs> but really, yeah, they're, they're kids. So, all right, while you may have a genetic disposition for these behaviors, childhood trauma and a lack of connection with other people helps bring them out. Okay, so this is the nurture side of the angle. This is the experiences side of it. So psychologists try to work on intervention with kids who have early signs of psychopathy so that they can prevent those experiences from exacerbating it. So, yeah, we think that there's a genetic component that's involved here in antisocial personality disorders. But depending on how we grow up, that can either exaggerate those problems or help us straighten them out. You know, the, that's the terminology that, that some people use, straighten it out. I think the idea was that it's sort of like a rubber band, right? In adults, real life psychopathy doesn't always lead to violence either, too. So that's important to distinguish. Some successful members of society would be deemed psychopaths if they were assessed by a clinician. In fact, this reminds me, our colleagues at Stuff They Don't Want You to Know did a video one time on, I believe it was on corporate CEOs and uh, the psychopathy scale uh-huh. and where they would fall on it. And in a lot of times, I believe the thesis of the, their video is that, yes, uh, the, those who tend to be successful also tend to be uh, to rate as psychopaths. It reminds me of the study that we were talking about in our episode on the Ig Nobel Prizes about CEOs who had experienced oh, yes. disastrous <laughs> uh, natural uh, disasters where um, where there were fatal incidents and those who hadn't. Uh, seen those repercussions were more likely to take risk. Yeah, so you have the idea that the CEO themselves is a psychopath. The uh, I've seen, of course, studies with that uh, say that a company as a whole is essentially a psychopath in the yeah. way its uh, its policies and if uh, it's treated as yeah, a person, as it's treated yeah. as a person. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and on top of that, I feel like the, the more you read about actual psychopathic traits. And, uh, and and how actual sociopaths function, you begin to just see more and more of them around you in your daily uh-huh. life. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and here's the thing, too, especially if you're a parent. So some parenting can actually make child psychopathy worse. 
and it depends on how you're parenting, right? So, uh, you know, some psychologists say that by punishing your child for behaving violently or callously, that actually leads the child to acting out in even more extreme ways. And in that New York Times article, mm-hmm. we certainly saw that with the, the child that was the case study there. But there's therapies for intervention and in therapies that can kind of help parents out too. Uh, sometimes starting as young as when the child is two years old, which hmm. kind of blows my mind because uh, I can't imagine being able to diagnose a two-year-old with this. Uh, but it is very difficult to identify, uh, not just in at-risk children, but especially because they haven't started socializing yet, right? So uh, it's only up until they start socializing that you're going to start seeing the callousness and the unresponsiveness. Uh, and also, like as we talked about earlier, kids with autism or ADHD may be similarly antisocial, but that's a whole totally different kind of brain structure. So there's screening tests. There's the oral and written tests that we talked about, uh, and they'll help a clinician identify psychopathy. But there's still a lot of uh, complications involved. And lastly, I'd just say that parents who are withdrawn or remote are also risking shaping a child who shuts down emotionally. And this is difficult when you think about the hereditary aspect, right? Because if a parent uh, had some unemotional, potentially callous behaviors in their nature, then it's going to be even more difficult for them to be interactive and not shut down emotionally with their children, right? So it's sort of a, you know, this is a silly term, but it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, I mean, because if the if the nature is already skewing psychopathic, uh, then the nurture is is likely going to as well from the parent contributing those genes. Yeah. So uh, in the same way that punishment can contribute to it, neglect can also contribute to it, mm-hmm. uh, that it can actually impair cortex development. And this is the stuff that controls the feelings or belonging an attachment in our brains. And that is a perfect segue into talking about brain anatomy. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. So according to MRI scans, psychopaths tend to have smaller subgenial cortex, 5 to 10% reduction in brain density in parts of the uh, paralimbic system. That's where empathy and social values and moral decision-making takes place. And uh, this includes the uh, orbitofrontal cortex uh, and uh, the uh, caudate. Uh, and these are all critical for reinforcing positive outcomes and discouraging negative outcomes. So this gets down to just the basic uh, principles of why do I behave the way that I behave? What's What's encouraging me? to do the right thing and feel responsible for my actions. Yeah, it really made me consider, huh, like I wonder what the shape of my brain is and how it's contributing to my behaviors and characteristics and things like that. It's not something that we usually as human beings kind of back up and think about, you know. Well, it's difficult to to do, right? Because you get into that whole blind brain idea that the brain can't really perceive itself and we're trying to... To We can't stand on the outside of self and look in. Uh, So we have this kind of... uh, Backdoor mirror way of trying the to, looking to make glass it work. self. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. which is often distorted. Yeah. So there's one really great study that I think contributes to the dialogue about children with psychopathy, uh, specifically juvenile homicidal offenders, and how uh, the biology is working here. And this came out in 2014. It was published in NeuroImage, uh, Clinical Volume Four, and the article has a ton of authors, so I'm not going to list them all. But it was called Abnormal Brain Structure in Youth Who Commit Homicide. So essentially, this group 
of researchers looked at young incarcerated homicidal offenders uh, and they found that they have reduced gray matter volumes in their medial and lateral temporal lobes, including the hippocampus and the posterior insula. And this is relative to compared youth who are not homicidal offenders. So from this, we know that their brains are shaped differently and they have less gray matter. That's the essential discovery here. The growing research indicates that the temporal poles are responsible, these are the areas where there's less gray matter, for social and emotional processing. And this included detecting deception and moral decision-making, as well as inferring the emotional states of others. So that makes sense in terms of thinking about uh, the traits of psychopathy that we talked about earlier. So these are the regions of your brain that cover critical cognitive control, and emotion. And they cited some other studies here, too. One was that male youth with conduct disorder uh, had reduced gray matter in their left amygdala and anterior insula compared to the healthy control subset. And these reductions were related to aggressive behaviors. In yet another study, adolescent males with conduct disorder had reduced gray matter in the left orbital frontal cortex and bilateral temporal lobes, as well as the left amygdala and the hippocampus. So all of this together is kind of saying, all right, they had previously looked at uh, boys with conduct disorder. They had looked at, uh, um, you know, what kind of gray matter they were missing. And they said, well, wait a minute. Conduct disorder seems to be connected to homicidal incidents with juveniles is the same thing going on there. And yes, it is. It's less gray matter. It's just in different parts of the brain, essentially. So in this specific study, the way that they analyzed the brain structure was they took youth who committed homicides and they did MRI scans on them. And they introduced the following variables into their data set. They added their IQ, their age at the time of scan, the number of traumatic brain injuries they'd received with a loss of consciousness, They used a test uh, for psychopathy called the hair psychopathy test list, and uh, they used the, quote, youth version. I guess there's separate versions depending on how old you are. Uh, Whether or not these kids had substance dependencies, the years of regular substance abuse that they had, and what their psychiatric diagnoses and violent, nonviolent, drug, and total other convictions were. So all of these things combined, right? Now, like I said, prior work showed that there was reduced temporal pole gray matter that was related to psychopathic traits. But the interesting thing in this particular study is that the homicide group and the non-homicide subsample did not differ in psychopathic traits per the scores that they took on that test there that I mentioned earlier, the psychopathy, the hair psychopathy youth version. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, the, the authors of this study say there is no observation that can be made that psychopathy is involved here, right? We can't, we can't say that. What we can say is that juveniles who commit murder have less of this gray matter. Okay. So it, yeah, it becomes the increasingly more difficult to try and say this, this is the brain of a homicidal yeah. young offender. This is, it, it's far more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and, but here's the good news. Other research has shown that our gray matter is malleable, right? So one study shows that 15 minutes of daily mirror reading for two weeks can increase the dorsolateral occipital gray matter. That's fascinating to me that just by doing that, you can change the shape of your brain or the volume of your brain. So it's possible that through cognitive training like this or possibly, you know, uh, 
pharmaceutical interventions or therapy or other types of behavior modification that you can help these kids to develop out of these behaviors that could potentially lead to them killing someone. Now, there does seem to be a link between low levels of cortisol and below normal function of the amygdala. That's the part of our brains that processes fear and shame. So usually we want to avoid these sensations, and that plays a big role in our behavioral motivation. So it, it gets down at root to just how our brains function uh, in, the, in the face of fear and shame and how, yeah. how much of our behavior is aimed at avoiding those sensations. So when researchers have looked specifically at areas of the brain that are associated with fear and empathy, they found a couple of things. Sheila Hodgkins, or Hodgins, uh, she's a professor of psychology at the University of Montreal. She conducted experiments. You know, a, a lot of this comes down to basically MRI scans. Uh, and in this case, she did MRI scans on adult psychopaths. I don't believe that they are homicidal offenders. Uh, and she found that even if they're nonviolent, their brains are different. Uh, they have abnormal connections between their posterior cingulate and the insular cortex. Similar structures were found in preteen boys with callous, unemotional states. So I believe that that's referring to those other studies before the one looking specifically at juvenile homicidal offenders. Um, but these brains are, like we said, they're malleable, they're highly plastic. Uh, kids can grow out of these. Remember what we were talking about earlier. I mean, we're, our brains are developing until we're 25 years old. Yeah. Like, uh, this is something we, we can take action. Yeah, it's it's worth remembering that uh, in A Clockwork Orange, uh, Alex essentially grows out of his behavior in That's the book anyway. Yeah, I think they, they left that last chapter out of the movie. <clears throat> but getting so, OK, we're talking a lot about the brain part here. Right. But let's remember that there's the nurture part as well. So uh, young brains, especially those from zero to three years old are especially vulnerable to hurt, right? And that's, you know, probably part of why culturally we're so averse to the idea of anybody hurting uh, an infant or a toddler, right? right. Uh, so children who suffer physical abuse, stress, neglect, or terror can absolutely have changes in their brains from this. The flood of stress chemicals resets how the brain is triggered during fight or flight situations, right? So uh, in some cases, they'll be triggered too much. In some cases, they won't be triggered at all. Uh, it can lead to impulsive aggression. So, yeah, no duh. Abusive parents can lead to youth violence. That makes sense, right? Especially given, like, I guess our world experience. But also, remember, it's not just abusive parents doing this. It's also that there's there's something going on with the brain ahead of time that yeah, contributes. And it's also worth noting that the conditions that we mentioned there can often line up, um, unfortunately, with um, institutionalized care mm-hmm. uh, in the form of orphanages. So uh, that's also a factor to take into account here. And so, you know, on the other end of that, it could lead to antisocial personalities when the brain system of stress has just become totally unresponsive. So typically these kind of kids, and I think this is the uh, CU type kids, they have low heart rates, uh, they have impaired emotional sensitivity, right? In fact, Paul Frick, a psychologist at the University of New Orleans, has studied the risk factors for psychopathy in children for 20 years, and he described... One boy who used a knife to cut off the tail of their family cat bit by bit over a period of weeks. This is from that New York Times article. Uh, In fact, the parents didn't even notice. It took them quite a long time because it was so small. I don't think the cat was like 
uh, in pain and letting them know or bleeding or something like that. Hmm. Um, but this gets back to kind of what we insinuated earlier is that the, a common symptom in the, these traits of, uh, CU kids is that they will abuse animals. Yeah. And of course it's important to note too that some level of, like if your child hits the cat, or steps mm-hmm. on a bug. Right. Uh, a certain level of this is just a natural way in which a child figures out how pain works, how the limits of its body and its powers to impact its in- environmental surroundings, how all of that functions. So, yeah. so don't fr- freak out if you listen to this and then you you catch a child uh, I, slapping at the cat. You know, uh, out there you can make judgments about a childhood me. Uh, but I believe I was like maybe three or four years old and I took the family cat and put him inside my toy chest uh-huh. and just closed him in there. I mean, it was a big chest. It wasn't like a t- tiny thing, but I didn't understand. I was just like, oh, he goes in here now with the toys. Yeah. And, uh, my, my parents were like, where's the cat? And they finally found the cat in there, you know? And, uh, I just didn't, I didn't get it. You know, I, 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 uh, would hesitate to say that at any point I've been callous or unemotional in my life. That's probably the opposite. <laughs> well, see, we've curved a lot of that by just having a, a, a largely callous and unemotional cat. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. So, That's perfect. Yeah, so she lashes out against uh, our son and then... <laughs> just bats him occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how my cat treats my dog. But, so, okay, to be serious about this, without unconditional love, children can fail to develop the right neural circuits that control their capability to feel or form healthy relationships. Uh, and in particular, this makes them especially hypersensitive to perceived injustice uh, and also often accompanied by when they're feeling powerless as well. Uh, so we saw that in the New York Times article, there was a, a lot of examples of this with the, the child, Michael, that was the case study in which he perceived an injustice against himself and he perceived powerlessness. And so he would lash out against his siblings or he'd lash out against mm-hmm. his parents or other kids in, in the program that he was in. Now, there's some other brain pathologies that can lead to violence as well. Uh, lesions of the frontal lobe can induce apathy and distort judgment and emotion. Uh, the cingulate uh, gyrus that curves through the center of the brain is uh, hyperactive in murders, and it just shifts from one thought to another. When it becomes impaired, people get stuck on one thought. Hmm. It becomes an okay. obsession. Yeah. Uh, the prefrontal cortex is sluggish in murders as well. And these damages to the brain uh, can result from head trauma as well as exposure to toxic substances like, uh, like alcohol even during uh, gestation. Okay, so I think that what we've established up to this point is that there's a lot of evidence that damage to the brain, however it occurs, Mm -hmm. can contribute to this, but that also uh, experiences in childhood can also contribute not only to your behaviors, but how your brain is formed. Yeah, the the human mind is a nature-nurture cocktail and a rather complicated recipe at that. There are a number of things that can throw it off whack, and even if it's off whack, even if the the drink recipe is a little different, it doesn't mean it's not drinkable. That doesn't mean it can't fully function within society. So now let's let's get to the third part of the question that I wanted to answer when we started out on this, which is how likely is juvenile homicide recidivism, right? You remember we were talking at the beginning about that uh, girl uh, in, in Britain who had uh, committed murder as a young child in the 60s and then was released and was anonymous, uh, Mary Bell, and uh, had a child. In fact, I think she's a grandmother now. Um, how, how likely is it, you know, in, in her case, she didn't recede, but what about, uh, other children? Well, unfortunately, this is really hard to predict. Uh, in fact, the, uh, 
2014 National Report from the National Center for Juvenile Justice and the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention says that there is no national recidivism rate for juveniles. The reason why is that each state has a very different juvenile justice system that differs in organization, administration, and data capacity. So we can't pull all this data together and make national judgments on it, is essentially what they're saying. Uh, and in fact, 11 states in the United States don't even report data on juvenile offenders. So it's really difficult to make any kind of, you know, judgment call in the United States. But what about other countries? Well, there is a study out of the Netherlands that indicated that male juvenile homicidal offenders and those in particular that maintain relationships with delinquents are at a greater risk for reoffending. So it is possible uh, that that is a very different subsample. That's just in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. But in that particular study, they did find that they're uh, at a high rate for recidivism. So and another thing that came out of this New York Times study was a really interesting uh, look into a researcher named Lee Robbins. He was a psychiatry researcher. Uh, and he conducted a series of studies on children who had behavioral problems and followed them into adulthood. Uh, and his studies revealed two things. The first was that nearly every psychopathic adult was deeply antisocial as a child. The second was that almost 50% of the children who scored high on measures of antisocial qualities did not go on to become psychopathic adults. So, in other words, they were necessary but not sufficient in predicting who ultimately would become a violent criminal. So that's good to know. So these tests don't necessarily indicate if you're a child and you score high on them that you're going to grow up and become a violent criminal. Right? Yeah, because growing up is key. There's still so yeah. much growing up, so much development to come. Mm-hmm. This is not the finished product. All the experiences, yeah. And yeah. It, it, even, again, like I keep coming back to that we're maturing. Our brain is maturing until we're 25 years old. That you know, in my experience, that's you get seven years out of high school where yeah. your brain is still maturing based on whatever experiences you have there. Yeah, totally. I mean, just it forces you certainly to to reevaluate your own life up till 25, yeah. and maybe make you a little more compassionate towards the uh, the teenagers in your midst. Now, I think I understand why in America uh, you have to be 25 before you can rent a car. Oh yeah, that would make sense. Give me a only full form your organisms or exactly. biologies. <laughs> so uh, one of the big questions, of course, here is yeah, to what extent is it treatable? So the, the big hope here, and uh, and there's some, some good uh, evidence to back this up, is that there's still a capacity for empathy, uh, and it, controlled by specific parts of the the brain that still exist in a weakened state, and then they can be strengthened, especially if we act early enough to we rewire the developing brain. And this um, this brings to mind a couple of st- uh, studies that I've, I've looked at in the past. There's a 2013, both were 2013 studies, actually. One was published in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience, and the other is a study from the Social Brain Lab in uh, uh, of the University Medical Center in uh, uh, Groningen. Uh, and these looked at psychopathic uh, inmates, adults, uh, and looked at uh, a treatment opportunity. So... The um, the one uh, in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience that I mentioned, they used fMRI scans of the brains of 121 medium security prison inmates uh, during the viewing of uh, painful visual stimuli, stub toes, smash fingers, that sort of thing. You know, okay. the stuff that makes you go ouch. Uh, the researchers then asked the subjects to imagine the pain happening to themselves as well as to others. The results 
when highly psychopathic subjects imagined the pain happening to themselves, brain regions involved in empathy for pain lit up like normal in their minds. Huh. Uh, but when they but uh, when they imagined the pain inflicted on others, the same regions failed to activate. And this lines up with the with that uh, 2013 study from uh, the, the Social Brain Lab. Their findings suggested that a pa- the psychopath's empathic abilities didn't kick in automatically, but could be turned on by conscious will, by exercise, by repetition. So, both of these studies so again. It's a do, muscle, essentially. Yeah, it's like it's like a muscle. Think of it as a muscle that needs to be strengthened. Yeah, as a, a default setting that is off rather than on, and there has to be a little more conscious will and and routine. Just requires a little training and maintenance. Yeah, yeah. yeah they seem to suggest that that these sort of treatments, uh, these mirror treatments, these empathy treatments, uh, are, are going to show a lot of promise with the individuals of, of varying ages. The equipment's there. It's just a matter of making sure that it's turning on. Okay. So, all right. Let's go back to where we started here. We had three questions. The first was, how likely are juvenile homicidal offenders? How likely is it that there's that children will kill people? And the answer is not very. Yeah, it's pre- pretty slim. No, they're blown out in the media and in our sort of cultural mythology, but re- realistically speaking, slim chance. Yeah, and then the second question would be, well, why is this happening? Why do they do this? And the answer is that it's a very complicated a mixture of nature and nurture, right? Mm-hmm. Brain activity as well as their experiences and their interaction with their families and peers. Right. And then the third question was, well, how likely is it that the very small amount of them uh, that do commit these crimes will recede if they're released from jail? And the answer is that we don't know. Like it maybe the Netherlands, it seems to be the case that they might. But uh, U.S. data is all over the place. So uh, as of right now, it's it's really hard to pinpoint an answer on that one. There are just so many factors involved in with each individual. It's not like the, the psychopath is like a, one clone of another. Yeah. And they're just, oh, those are psychopathic organisms there. No, it's 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 a far more complex neurological condition. But so the good news, though, is that like what we were talking about just now and earlier, that the brain is malleable, that our behaviors can be formed and we can learn to better interact with other human beings. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a taught thing. And, and 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 the actual activity of doing that sort of rewires and reshapes things so that it's easier to do. All right. So there you have it. Um, the psychopathic child, the, um, the homicidal child, the callous and emotional child, uh, a, a reasonably deep dive into what's going on inside their minds, as far as we can tell, um, and what can be done to, to cope with it. So I guess the answer to my initial question is of, is Michael Myers possible is yes, but not likely. Yeah. Sure, it could happen, but it's very unlikely. Now, I know we have a lot of listeners out there with something to share about this. We've all had mm-hmm. childhoods. A number of people out there have children as well in their life. Uh, so, I mean, we may even have some, some listeners who themselves have, uh, callous and emotional traits or have children with callous and emotional traits. And yeah. we would love to hear from you. And certainly, if you want your name to remain, uh, you know, anonymous, just make a note of that and we'll Absolutely. be sure to we'll keep always it respect on the that. down low. Uh, how to get in touch with us. Well, you can always go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all of the podcast episodes. That's where you'll find blog posts, videos, uh, most importantly, like links out to our social media accounts, such as Facebook, uh, where we're Blow the Mind. Twitter, we're Blow the Mind there as well. Tumblr, we're Stuff to Blow Your Mind. 
all those uh, pages have some way to interact with us and send us questions and feedback. Yeah, and if you want to just write us directly and have us read your mail, uh, potentially in a listener mail episode, or just respond to you privately, uh, we'd love to do that too. And you can always reach us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank <laughs> you.